0: Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning, Um, and as we transition into this fall, I know this isn't what we had envisioned for our liturgy. Uh, We were truly hoping that we'd finally be able to meet in person uh, together here at Vesper this month, Uh, but this pandemic is still ongoing, and our hope is that we can continue to navigate this with as much grace and empathy uh, as we try to understand each other. Uh, while also prioritizing the care and protection of the most vulnerable. And throughout the past year and a half, you know, with all the disruptions and transitions and uncertainties that we've individually and collectively experienced, uh, we've all been given an opportunity uh, to, to reevaluate, to reflect, uh, to reprioritize different aspects of our lives. We've had to make adjustments, and sometimes we've had to simplify our experiences and even go back to the basics. And so before we explore today's text, I invite us to consider this question at home. Uh, when you reflect on this past year plus, what comes to mind when you think about areas of your life that you've had to reevaluate or readjust or even reset and if you're comfortable, please, please share some of those thoughts on the live chat. But I'll give you a moment to do that. So a couple of weeks ago, we dropped our son Zachary off uh, at college up in Dallas. And that's one of the most significant transitions that we've experienced as a family. Um, there was definitely excitement for this next chapter in his life. Uh, and there was also sadness, and some tears were shed as we left him in Dallas. Mainly our tears, not so much his. Uh, we actually offered to stay another night, but he was like, nope, I think I'm good. And part of our adjustment was having to reset the dynamic of now being a family of four at home. You know, relearning how many table settings to actually put out. Ordering less pizza than we normally do. Uh, getting used to an empty seat in the back row of our car. And for Zachary, you know, being stuck at home in his room for the last two years of high school, uh, it definitely helps make this move away from home much more manageable and comfortable and even necessary. And one of the things that he mentioned that he was most excited about was getting to meet new people in person. And he also recognized that he needed to polish up on his social skills, relearn how to make connections, which all of us have had to do this past year. And after his first couple of weeks, he's been able to connect and make new friends. And just the simple and ordinary moments of hanging out in dorm rooms, eating in the cafeteria, those have been so meaningful and so enjoyable for him, especially after this long season of being limited to virtual connections. And I think for us, in light of the disruptions we've experienced the past couple of years, we also have an opportunity to reevaluate and reexamine our faith. And in some ways revisit the simple practices of our faith. Or as Paula Gooder puts it, the spirituality of the ordinary. Relearning to engage and practice our faith in the ordinary ways that maybe we've neglected or missed or forgotten or even overlooked this past year. And so the question I invite us to consider this morning is what are some of the expressions and practices of an ordinary faith that we're invited to re-engage and revisit? And in our text for this morning, James unpacks a few things for us to consider as we reflect on our own practice of faith. And so we start in James chapter 2, verse 1. My siblings, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, if we look back at the first chapter, James talks about how the challenges of life uh, actually refine our faith. Disruptions and difficult circumstances help develop resilience and they reveal the makeup of our faith. And he emphasizes the need to be active participants and not just observers who hear the teachings of Christ. And for James, faith is an active expression that is revealed in how you live and not what you know. And so here, he offers an example that isn't just theoretical. I mean, it's probably happened within their church communities. So if two very different people walk in through the church doors, right, one who pulls up in a Lamborghini dressed like an influencer, and then you've got one who comes in who maybe walked in from the homeless encampment. How do we welcome and treat each of them? And James offers the likely scenario where we extend first-class hospitality to the wealthy person, and then we ignore the poor person or we find a place where they're less, they'll draw less attention. And I think if we're honest, the distinctions that we make are driven by selfish motives. There's clearly something to gain based on who we welcome and who we show favor to. In our minds, a certain type of person will give us access to more resources, more recognition, more credibility, more connections, And what comes to mind for me as I reflect on this text, especially in this current season, is how James is actually calling out celebrity culture. Because as a society, we have a preference and desire to associate with those who have influence and power. We have a desire to be connected with those who might validate our status and our popularity. And sadly, the church is not immune to the vortex of celebrity culture. But for us, an ordinary faith invites us to push against celebrity culture. To push against our natural desire to want to draw attention to ourselves and our community based on the people we welcome. And it requires us to be honest with our motivations for why we show favoritism to some people and not others. You know, recently I've been listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, as some of you have as well. And this podcast unpacks uh, the story of a church community up in Seattle and how it experienced explosive growth and meaningful impact in their city and also how they experienced a sudden collapse when their founding pastor resigned in the wake of controversy and a lot of stories, painful stories of people who had left the church. And I appreciate the complicated tension that the podcast tries to hold in highlighting the stories of hurt and suffering, and also acknowledging the presence of God in the midst of this broken and toxic environment. And ultimately, here's a situation of someone fueled by the power and fame and ego of celebrity culture, which ended up being destructive to himself and others. And and one of the reflections in the podcast that really stood out to me was that even though, yes, this was about a particular pastor, this was actually more a reflection of the greater church at large and why we look for and why we pursue and why we're drawn to these dynamic and charismatic personalities who are so self-absorbed. And it's an epidemic not just of pastors who embrace celebrity culture, but it's also the church communities themselves that foster and enable this kind of culture to thrive and continue. And it's not something that just affects mega churches. It's present in all churches of all sizes and types. And so I asked our staff and NAV um, to listen to this podcast, and we processed it last month at our leadership retreat. And it became an invitation for us to hold a mirror up to ourselves and to really ask ourselves what culture we've created and fostered here at Vox? Who are the people we're choosing to welcome? And what do people experience through our church and through our culture? And one of the common narratives and experiences um, that I've heard from many of you who've been with Vox for a while, or even for those who are observing from afar, is that Vox is a safe place, right, to come as you are in your faith journey, to bring questions and doubts not feel like you have to have it all figured out. And at the same time, there's also a common experience that people feel a bit intimidated. They don't feel cool enough to belong to the community. And when I hear that, one, it makes me sad. It makes me a bit upset. But what does it say about our culture when people feel awkward or uncomfortable that they might not fit certain personality or aesthetic checkboxes. And if I'm really honest with myself, we had subtly created this culture that carried a sense of pride and even some arrogance, that we had created something special, that we had figured out a better way of doing things compared to our fundamentalist and conservative church settings where we grew up in. And as a result, it affected who we were showing favoritism to and who we wanted to belong to this community. And so I apologize if this is something that you've experienced here at Vox, where you felt that you couldn't belong. And for us, maybe something we can practice as we wait for our return back to in-person is to collectively reflect on the culture of Vox as a community, and and who is it that we welcome and engage? Ask ourselves, how have we shown preference for certain types of people at the expense of others? And how might we push against celebrity culture that cares more about ego and influence in certain social spheres? And my hope is that we can continue to move into and cultivate a culture that welcomes all people for who they are and not what they might offer or what connections they might bring. And so Jesus warns us, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then we pick up in verse 8. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor As yourself. And so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, in this portion of the text, James references the laws of the Hebrew Scriptures and how at that time it was originally meant to determine who was in and who was out. And yet Jesus comes to reframe our understanding of how we are to view and treat others, to help us understand the expansive nature of God's love. Right? Jesus wasn't restricting God's love, but expanding it. And so here James makes the same reference that Jesus does when he mentions that the royal law or the most important law is loving your neighbor as yourself. And what exactly does it look like? to love your neighbor, extending mercy. And in many ways, mercy is the antidote to favoritism that he mentions earlier, because mercy withholds judgment of others. And so for us, an ordinary faith invites us to be grounded in mercy. Instead of taking a transactional approach to faith and to our relationships, what would it mean to be grounded in in mercy and i acknowledge that extending mercy is a very difficult thing to do especially when we've been hurt or wronged but our ability to extend mercy to others is tied to our ability to receive mercy and recognize the mercy we've been given you can only give what you have fully received you know jesus once told the story of this servant who owed the king a ridiculous amount of money. I think it was like the equivalent of 150,000 years worth of wages, which essentially is billions of dollars. Which, to be honest, I don't know how you even get into that sort of debt. Maybe he was taking a loan to buy Apple, the entire company, and realized he didn't have money to pay it back. I don't know. This is Jesus' story. But the king tries to collect what he can by ordering to sell his family and his possessions. And so the servant begs for mercy. And the king extends mercy and decides to forgive the entire debt. And as soon as this servant is out celebrating in the streets, he runs into his colleague who owes him about three months' worth of wages. So a substantial amount, but clearly not as much as he had owed. And his colleague can't pay him back, and so he throws his colleague into prison. And so the question that we're left with, right, is why was this servant unable to extend mercy to his colleague when he had just received mercy himself? And perhaps the servant never fully recognized, maybe he never fully received the mercy he was given Maybe it never became integrated to who he actually is, where he could extend that same mercy back out. And for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to make space, to reflect on the ways we've recognized and received mercy. How has it become integrated into our life where our faith is grounded in mercy? And maybe how might we need to unpack and process mercy some of the barriers that keep us from fully receiving mercy in our life. And so for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then we close in verse 14. What good is it, my, my siblings, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? And so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Some of us might have a complicated history with this passage when it comes to the relationship between works and faith. Maybe we grew up in church being taught that we're saved through faith alone, that our works aren't able to earn God's gift of love and life, which is true. But this sometimes leads to an unfortunate misunderstanding that it doesn't really matter what you do then. As long as you have faith in Jesus, then we're all done here. As long as you believe the right thing, then we're set for eternity. And that can be very limiting because it frames our faith in terms of what we believe and less on how we actually live. And what James is really getting at here is that those two things should be in alignment. What you do is actually a reflection of what you believe. And if your faith and belief is grounded in the life and teachings of Jesus, they should be integrated and embodied in how you live. And I get that Vox can be a very cerebral community. And sometimes we can be so much in our heads and in our minds that we don't expend an equal amount of energy around the embodiment of those beliefs. And what James is reflecting back to us is that our faith is way too small if it's just based on a set of beliefs. If Jesus teaches us to care for the least of these, it's one thing to believe that teaching, but it authentically becomes faith when we actually do it. And for us, ordinary faith invites us to go beyond knowledge, to intentionally integrate and embody care for the other. And what I appreciate about James's invitation to move towards action and participation is that it comes after we've been invited to push against celebrity culture and remain grounded in mercy. You know, early on in our history, Vox started out in a season of being very action-oriented. You know, we started Space 12. We looked to serve a neighborhood of need. We started intentional communities in East Austin homes. But if we're really honest, there was probably some selfish motives around recognition and status for what we were trying to do. And there was a lack of groundedness. And that's why for many of us in this community, we experienced burnout in that season. And it was so restorative and healing when we shifted to a season of contemplation and to focus more on being and less on doing. We learned to simply be in order to receive God's love instead of working so hard to try and earn God's love. And yet there's a sense that we've just been riding a pendulum, right? Taking us from one end of the spectrum, where we're consumed with doing, and then all all the way to the other side, where we're consumed with just being. And one of the other things we reflected on during our leadership retreat was how people connect and get plugged in at Vox. What's the script for what we communicate and what we invite people to experience? And as I mentioned before, you know, one of the things that we do really well is make space for those who have questions and doubts, those who've experienced hurt and burnout from church experiences. And our message has been to come as you are, to rest, to recover, to receive God's love instead of trying to earn it. And that has been meaningful and healing for those who need to hear that. But that's where our script ended. And I think we realized that we were offering an incomplete script. We were missing what James is reminding us here. Yes, it's important to receive God's love and not earn it. Yes, it's important for us to experience healing. And how do we integrate our understanding of who God is and embody that for the good of others around us? How do we participate in a healthy way? We use our gifts and resources in mutuality with others. And James keys in on meeting the physical needs of the most vulnerable. That's what ordinary faith looks like. And so Vox, as we continue to navigate this uncertain season, My hope is that we would still consider how we might move our faith towards a more healthy balance of contemplation and action. To do the contemplative work of being grounded in mercy while also embodying the life and teachings of Jesus in how we offer tangible care to those around us. That's the way we can be faithful in the ordinary. And so let me close with this prayer. God who sustains us and shows us mercy, may we be grounded in your mercy so that we may offer others the same. Jesus who chose to live among the marginalized and outcast, may we confront our favoritism that excludes those you would welcome. And spirit who guides us in discerning our faith, may we be empowered to embody the life and teachings of Jesus. And so we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the empathy of Christ, and the discernment of the spirit. Amen.